0: turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Uh, I've entitled this morning's message, Pick Up Your Cross. It deals with the crucifixion, as we're getting close to finishing up the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has been here for 33 years, and 33 years minus 8 days is Luke 2, verses 25 to 35, it was customary to circumcise uh, the male children in Judaism. This would be done on the eighth day. Only today, and with the technology that we have, uh, do they understand that there's a high level of vitamin K on the eighth day that helps the blood coagulate, which is going to help a lot with the circumcision. So it was on the eighth day in verse 21, that Jesus uh, was circumcised and he was going to be dedicated and so they're on their Mary and Martha, uh, uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus are on their way to the temple and in verse 25, there's a man named Simeon. Much of uh, the Bible study is gonna be just how much prophecy is actually in the scriptures. So here, Simeon is going to prophesy. It's going to be the first prophecy we look at this morning. And in verse 25, it says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just, he was devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. So he came by the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. I'll stop there and point out, this is gonna be the first of many Old Testament prophecies that are going to be fulfilled. This one was from Isaiah chapter nine, verse two, verse 33. And Joseph and Mary marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the rise and fall of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. And then he looks at Mary and he says, Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. He's speaking about, go back to Matthew now, chapter 27. He's speaking about the time, and we'll get to that a little bit later, when Mary will be standing looking up at Jesus on the cross. And that's when this one will be fulfilled. But between the time that Simeon said it and the time that it was fulfilled, there's a, uh, there's a gap of 33 years. So if you're, if you're in Matthew 27, let's just sort of walk our way through it. If you look at verse 1, it tells us when morning came. Well, the night before Jesus was betrayed by Judas, we find in verse 75 of 26, um, Peter had denied the Lord for the third time and he went out and wept bitterly. And the Lord would have been up all night long, he would have gotten no sleep. We find that he's examined by Pilate in verses 11 through 14. And um, here we have another prophecy being fulfilled in that um, this is from Isaiah 53. I'm going to be taking back and forth a lot of these, but I'm gonna, just going to quote a couple of them until we get to our actual study in our text this morning. But Pilate is, if you look at verse 14, he was greatly, he answered him not a word so that the governor He marveled greatly. All these accusations coming against the Lord. And again in Isaiah it says, as a lamb before his shears, Uh, so he opened up not his mouth. He was silent. And this, this marveled. I think there was something in the way that Jesus handled himself before Pilate I think that Pilate was a little unnerved. Remember, he was a little unnerved already because his wife came in and said, listen, I had a dream last night and we don't want anything to do with this righteous man. I believe the reason Jesus had him scourged was that the people would feel sorry for him and possibly give him up in the place of Barabbas. Either way, something in the way that Jesus conducted himself, impacted Pilate to such a degree that when all was said and done, he said, look, I've examined this guy, and I find no fault in him. Now, this was necessary, because what had had been going on for the last four days is Israel was about to celebrate the Passover. And so what they would have done is they would have gotten a lamb, each family a lamb, It had to be completely inspected. A lamb of one year Could not have any blemishes on whatsoever. So that that lamb was without fault. But then, to bring the emotional part into it, they were told to bring the lamb actually inside the house. So everybody's seen the lambs, right? They're cute and cuddly. And um, those children, of course, would get emotionally attached. So after four days now mom and dad said, now we're gonna take this spot without lamb that you've grown attached to and we're going to kill it. And that's the emotional part and we'll see when we go back to Genesis, the love of a father giving up his son and what was taking place that day. Pilate's examination of him is a sign that he is declaring that this man is innocent I find no fault with him. And that made him equivalent to a, a lamb that would have been completely gone over for any imperfections because if there was one, he was not suitable for the sacrifice. So what we have next is Jesus being scourged, stripped in verse 28, a robe put on him. Uh, the soldiers at this point um, had free access to the prisoner who was condemned. He was condemned to be crucified. Pilate tried to talk him out of it by offering him Barabbas. Um, Verse 20 says, the chief priest and the elders persuaded the multitudes to release Barabbas and to crucify Jesus. So now the death sentence is placed upon our Lord. And in verse 29, we talked about this last Sunday, of uh, the crown of thorns representing the curse that was upon the earth. And um, then they bowed the knee before him and mocked him. They hit him with a reed with his right hand. They spat on him and struck him on the head. They mocked him. I quoted this last Sunday, but uh, again, it bears repeating of what was taking place here because of this, it'll lead us to our next Old Testament prophecy. That soldiers took the opportunity to have their fun with him before he was crucified. Since he was going to die anyway, they could manipulate him and do anything they wished with him. They played a cruel Roman game known as hot hand with their prisoners. All the soldiers... Uh, would show the prisoner their fists. In other words, he's not blindfolded yet, and they'd show him their fists like this. And then they would blindfold the prisoner, in this case, Jesus. Then they would blindfold him, and all but one would hit him as hard as they could. Then they would remove the blindfold, and if the prisoner was still conscious, uh, he was to guess which shoulder did not hit him. Now, obviously, The prisoner could never guess the right one, so this would go on for quite a while. And they would continue this until they had beaten the prisoner to a pulp. I believe that the Lord Jesus was so mutilated that you would not have recognized him. In Isaiah, if you're taking notes, here's another prophecy now from the Old Testament. We're already up to three this morning, if not four. Isaiah 52, verse 14, I take this literally says, as many as were astonished at his vestige or his appearance was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. I believe that the Lord was so um, beat up. Um, Sometimes people would die from the scourging. I got a little bit more time in the second service so I'll tell you what I didn't say in the first service. And that is, the way that they would solicit um, repentance for a crime in a scourging was they would make it clear, to the Romans would, ahead of time, that we're going to start off going easy on you. And if you confess, then we will continue going easy with you. But if you don't confess what we know that you did that was wrong, then the beatings are continually going to get more severe. 10 more severe at 20, more even more severe at 30, and by the time they got to 40, many a prisoner um, without confession would have died. And now you have the Son of God, who has never sinned with nothing to confess. My point is he not only faced the brutality of his beard being ripped out, the brutality of, we've all watched boxing matches, you know, and you, you, know, you bob and you move and, you see the punch coming, and he could get a glancing blow. The Lord had none of that advantage. He was blindfolded, so he took. And the like I said, the Romans could care less. He's a dead man anyway, so we're going to have our Roman sport. And I I just think of the the brutality of man um, when left to his own. But this fulfilled what Isaiah the prophet said, fifty two fourteen. If you're taking verses. Marred more than any man. Maybe that's why they weren't sure about him when they saw him in the Galilee. Maybe that's why Cleopas and his friends weren't sure about him when, when he was on the road to Emmaus until he prayed, that is, that he went like that and they saw the scars. Maybe that's why Mary uh, Magdalene didn't recognize him at the tomb. Then again, he could have very easily just changed his appearance. We don't know, the scriptures don't really, really uh, tell us. But it brings us to now, I believe he would have been extremely weak because of the beating, because of the scourging. It brings us to our text, and um, whether Jesus, two, two traits of thoughts here. One, he just carried the crossbeam on his shoulders, or it could be that he carried the entire cross. And we really don't know for sure. Um, Either way, his strength gave out in verse 32. And they came and they found a man from Cyrene, Simon, by name, him. They compelled to bear his cross. Why? Because I don't think the Lord had the strength to go any farther. Now, I've thought about this before. And all of us here know there's absolutely nothing we can add Um, to the work. He would do this by himself, at least as much as he could. And there's nothing you or I could do to help Jesus on that day, with one exception, and it's this man right here. And I've often thought if I had the chance, if I could do anything, I would want to be this guy, to be able to do this. And so would every man here that loves the Lord. That there's nothing we can do to add to our salvation. But if we could be Simon of Cyrene, that's who I would like to be for a day on this day. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, this is to say the place of the skull. I'm going to put this on screen right now. Golgotha is where we get the name Calvary from. And... This is an older picture of Golgotha, the place of the skull. You can see the two sets, and you can see the nose. The last time we were there, last November, unfortunately it was the first time in my many years of going there that the erosion on the bridge of his nose is gone. So they actually show a picture of it the way it, it would have looked like. In the early 1900s, it is so clear that it is, is a skull and this would have been outside the city gates pretty close to the Damascus gate and I'll be talking more about this when we get into Genesis we're going to leave this up for the duration of the study and I'm going to come back to it a little bit later so this is uh, Golgotha the place of the skull and now in verse 34 they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. This is gonna be the fourth prophecy. If you're taking notes, this comes from Psalm 69, verse 21. This one I won't have you turn to, but I am gonna have you turn to um, uh, when I, Psalm 22. So this one here is 69, 21. It says, they also gave me Well, I'm going to read 19 through 21. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart. I believe Jesus actually died of a broken heart. I'll come back to that later, too. And I was full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, I found none. And they also gave me gall for my food. And for my first thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. This psalm was written by David 1,000 years ago. And now it is being fulfilled 1,000 years later. When the Bible says the volume of the book is about Jesus, what's the volume of the book about? It's about Jesus. (laughs) Part of the problem with the church today is people come to church because they want the volume of the book to be about them. And tell me something about me. All right, there's nothing good in you. Your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. (laughs) In my flesh dwells no good thing. Is there anything else you want to know about yourself? All right, then we'll continue to talk about the Lord. Here is the fifth prophecy being fulfilled. The next one um, Matthew comes right out and says that it is a prophecy. Then they crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots that he might be it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. They divided my garments, and for my clothing they cast lots and they quote psalm twenty two Now, everybody here, I hope you have your Bibles. I want you to take your Bibles because for the next Five or six examples, we're gonna be going back from Matthew 27 to Psalm 22. So find Psalm 22, and also go to Isaiah chapter 53. and Keep your fingers in all three places. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. First of all, there they crucified him. I'm reading Isaiah 53, verse five. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And all we like sheep were, were um, healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. This is a reference to also to Herod. I mean, uh, when he was before Pilate. And also uh, in this portion here, we can leave that for now and we'll be coming back to that later. Let's go to Psalm 22. And we read Matthew quoting it directly, saying this was spoken by the prophet, meaning that David was a prophet because he wrote Psalm 22, verse 18, where it tells us, they divided my garments among them, and for their clothing they cast lots. But also the crucifixion is in verse 16 and 17, for dogs have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me Notice, they pierced my hands and my feet. I countered all of my bones. They look and stare at me. Uh, This is um, going to be fulfilled in verse 36. Which says, sitting down, they kept watch over him there. That's Matthew 27, the very next verse. That's fulfilled. In 2217, where they look at him and the crucifixion, I should point out that during David's time, 1000 BC, the form of capital punishment was not crucifixion. That wasn't invented for hundreds of years later. Uh, capital punishment uh, for a Jewish person was stoning. So here, David is writing about capital punishment. And it hasn't even been brought into existence yet because their form of of, um, the death sentence would have been stoning. All right, Uh, verse 18, they divided my garments among them and for my clothes they cast lots. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 actually give us more graphic information of the suffering of the Lord than we actually find in the Gospels. Let's make our way back to Matthew 27. We just read verse 36. That was also fulfilled there. Verse 37. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. All right, let's stop there. And you should still have your finger in Psalm 22, now verse seven. And it's also, uh, they scorned to me and laughed to me. They shoot out their lips, they shake their heads, saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. This is fulfilled. uh, while Jesus is on the cross. Go back to Matthew 27. Um, The two robbers also derided him. Um, Those underground said, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priest, also mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of the Jews, let him now come down from the cross, and uh, he will, we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him. Now, if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. All right? Psalm 22, verse 8 He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. 1,000 years earlier, word for word. Brings us to, Jesus would have been on the cross. He had been up all night. He was crucified at nine in the morning. And he would have been on the cross for six hours. And it says in verse 45, now the sixth hour, which would have been noon, until the ninth, which would have been three in the afternoon, there was darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the fourth thing Jesus said from the cross. The first thing that Jesus said from the cross, you need to turn to Luke chapter 23, And let me draw your attention to verse 34. let's go back to 33. When they had come to the place called Calvary. So Calvary is Golgotha. Matthew calls it Golgotha. Luke calls it Calvary. There they crucified him. And in criminals, one on the right hand and one on the left. So Luke tells us he was in the middle. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then they divided his garments and cast lots. And verse 47, back of Matthew 27, now that we got that squared away, that was the first thing that Jesus said. And they had no idea of what they were doing. And some of those who stood there when they heard this said, "This man is calling for Elijah." And immediately one of them ran and took it, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Here's the next prophecy fulfilled. This is Psalm sixty nine, verse twenty one. And the rest said, "Let him let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him." And Jesus, when he cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. Now, um, the second thing that the Lord would have said after Father forgive them what will they do, would have been to the thief. Now it tells us both of the thieves were mocking him, but somewhere during this period of time, one of them had a complete change of heart and attitude. And he actually believed that Jesus really was the Son of God. The second thing that Jesus said was to the thief. This thief, who was mocking him earlier, he looks at the Lord, and he says, Lord, will you remember me when you enter your kingdom? And the Lord looked at him, and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And people get confused here, because remember, uh, it says in Ephesians that before Jesus ascended, what does it say that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? We're told that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of a fish, Jesus is gonna be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, what in the world was he doing in the heart of the earth for three days? Well, Ephesians again tells us he was setting the captives free. Hebrews tells us that the Old Testament saints died not having received the promise. So they were waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting for the sacrifice to be complete so that they could go to heaven. In Luke chapter 16, we all know the story of Lazarus and the rich man. They both die. One goes to hell. He finds himself in torment. The other one goes to a place called Abraham's bosom. This is what Jesus was referring to. He looks at the thief and he says, Today, You're going to be with me in paradise. Is paradise heaven? No. Paradise is Abraham's bosom. And um, after three days, uh, I believe he emptied Abraham's bosom. And that's what he was doing down there. So uh, let, let me cheat a little bit and go ahead. Look at verse 52. And it says in Matthew 27, and the graves were opened and many of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. That means they were in Abraham's bosom or paradise and now it says their graves were opened and they went around Jerusalem appearing to many. How weird is that? I like to say imagine having your <laughs> your Aunt Sue dead for 30 years and all of a sudden You get a knock in the door. (laughs) Hi, Aunt Sue, (laughs) I thought you were dead. (laughs) No, this is what the scriptures teach, but notice what it says. The word death is never used for a Christian. It says, had fallen asleep, were raised, and coming out of the grave after his resurrection. Remember, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus was the first fruits. He was the first person to be resurrected with a resurrected body. And so after Jesus arose from the dead, then these others also um, were resurrected and they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I just think it's one of the strangest scriptures in the Bible. So the second thing Jesus said on the cross to this man, today you'll be with me in paradise. I'll make a point of him when we get Closer to closing up this morning. The third thing that Jesus um, said uh, was to Mary. Oh, I should mention if you're taking notes, this is the fifth prophecy. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says he was numbered with the transgressors. So that was fulfilled here. The third thing Jesus said um, was to John and to Mary. And let's go back now to where we started the Bible study. We went 33 years back in time. And here's Simeon, or Simon. And he prophesies. And he says, Jesus, the one being dedicated today at eight days old, is going to be the rise and fall of many. And then he looks at Mary, and he says, but someday your heart is going to be so broken, it's going to be like a sword going through your heart. That's happening at this moment. Jesus is on a cross, and I think it would have went something like this. He looks down and he sees Mary, and he says, woman, and then he would have went like this to John, behold your son. And then he would have said to John, John, behold your mother. And we have, um, at this time, just imagine any mother seeing her son Not only dying, but dying in such a difficult way. Again, fulfilling prophecy that um, the Lord told them, you're not going to die until you see the Savior. And he says, I can go home now. But Mary, it's going to be hard for you when the reason that he came, you're going to be there, you're going to see it, and your heart is going to be broken as she's looking up at the cross. The fourth thing that the Lord said from the cross was right here. Oh, he says, why hast thou forsaken me? This would have been uh, Psalm 22, verse one. Are you still in Psalm 22? Put your finger there, look at the very first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father had to forsake his son. For a time, because he is holy and he is in no way, shape, or form can be associated with sin because of his holiness. Now, when I think about this, you know the word selah? That word selah means there's times that when you, you read something that the Lord really wants you to just stop and actually contemplate it, meditate upon it. And think about it. This is one of those verses for me. I can kind of wrap my head around, I'm born again, I had a beginning, and my Bible says I'm going to live forever. Good place for an amen. So I can kind of see that forever. Always being. I'm always going to be, you're always going to be. What I can't wrap my head around is always been. I'm making the point because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have always been. They have never not been a Trinity. They have never not been the Godhead. They have never not been separated. So the cry from Jesus' heart here is why have you forsaken me? This is the first time throughout all eternity that there's separation between the Father and the Son and this preacher doesn't have words to describe that, but um, it was a heart wrench for the Lord, and it was necessary uh, for the Lord to take the sins of the world upon himself and to actually have the Father separated from Jesus at this time. The fifth and the sixth thing that were said from uh, the cross we find in John chapter 19. So I'm going to ask you to turn over there. And it'll it'll give us some clarification about what I said earlier with Mary. 28 was in verse 28. No, let's go back because I want to talk about John again and the fact that uh, John and Mary were here. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Uh, Many of you here, and many of you watching live stream, as we get older, we have parents uh, that need to be taken care of. And this is what the Lord was doing. He was gonna make sure that Mary was taken care of. It's interesting to me that none of the other children were given that direction, but do you know that none of Jesus' brothers or sisters yes, he had both brothers and sisters did not believe on him until after the resurrection? I can't imagine growing up with a perfect older brother. Don't you think that would be difficult? Never messing up, never blowing it, never doing anything wrong. I don't know if I'd want anything to do with him either. <laughs> they did not believe in, on him until afterwards so Jesus entrusts John who did believe on him and loved him said John you're taking care of mom and it says from that moment he went home and she stayed with him after this Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished said I thirst now this one is going to tie in with uh, a prophecy um, in the next verse verse 29 says now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled it, a sponge with sour wine and put, put it on hyssop and put it in his mouth. Um, verse 28, if you're still in Psalm 22, look at verse 15. When it says I thirst, David is more descriptive. He was not only thirsty, but his tongue was stuck to the top of his jaw. My strength is dried up like a pot shred. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of my death. And the other one is fulfilled in um, Zechariah, if you're taking notes, uh, 1110, where he said, it is finished. Um, The sixth... Word from the cross is recorded in John nineteen thirty. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. When you compare the gospel records, you discover that he shouted this statement. Now, I'm not going to shout this morning, but imagine me shouting at the top of my voice. It is finished. Everything that Jesus came to do has now finally been accomplishment, has been accomplished. With a loud voice, he cried, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and he gave up the spirit. At the age of 33, most people are saying, it's a beginning. But at the age of 33, Jesus was saying, no, it is finished. He did not say, I am finished. It was not a cry of defeat. It was a shout of victory. In the Greek language in which John wrote the statement, it's just one word with 10 letters. It's the word tetelestai. Perhaps this is a new word for you. It simply means it is finished, it stands finished, it'll always be finished. I like to say paid in full. My sin, your sin, paid in full, and the victory is won. And it is a declaration at this point. Um, I told this little story to the first service. I'll tell it here. I've told it before. I was in the Lord for a couple of years in Oshkosh. I was going to an, a good assembly of God church at the time. And um, we had a traveling evangelist come through. And he liked to put on his skits, like he put on the great white throne judgment where people actually had to come down and and they had the books opened and, and it was determined um, um, if the books were open and your name wasn't in it, you, you, were, you were shown off to hell. Well, me being the only hippie with long hair and a beard in the church under 30, I got to play the part of Jesus on a cross at Calvary. And they actually had a crown on me. And I had my arms outstretched for the duration of maybe an hour. They were tied up. And i got to tell you, after about 10 or 15 minutes, my arms were in such agony and pain, I couldn't imagine. My arms were tied up there. Jesus had his hands nailed to the cross and to his feet. When it says, when we read, you can see his bones. Um... The prisoners would eventually die of suffocation because they broke their legs. That's because every breath that you took on the cross, you would have to raise yourself up to get air in your lungs and then cause yourself to go back again. And so what I'm trying to give some, I've had um, the smallest part of trying to imagine the intense suffering that crucifixion actually is and the suffering that Jesus actually went through when he went when he died on Calvary's cross and I remember the part getting towards the end where the evangelist says say now um, father into your hands I commend my spirit and then lower your head well he liked me so much he took me on the road (laughs) we went to Chicago and we went to other places because he just couldn't find a hippie in a church for nothing so I got to go along. And it's one of my, remember Joel's um, wife was with the Lord now. Um, remember, we went to the same church at, at the time and she says, I, I remember that. And um, I'd like to say it was fond memories, but one that I, I let, I'm glad the Lord let me experience because uh, it's something looking down and seeing John and, and, and Mary and actually thinking about what he, what he went through. The last thing that Jesus says is in Luke chapter 23. So if you want to turn over to that. Verse 46. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus said, I have power to lay down my life. And I have power to raise it up again. But the other thing that he has that we can't do is he has the authority to dismiss his spirit. And that's what he does. He dismissed his spirit. And when it was all done, and he knew it was all done, he says, Father, that which you've set me to do is accomplished. Father, into your hands. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw it, he glorified God saying certainly this was uh, a righteous man and the whole crowd who came together to see what had been done beat their breast and returned but all of his acquaintances and all the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. My, we've gone through many prophecies but my favorite of all of them is, you know, the saying we have here for every New Testament teaching, we have an Old Testament picture. Abraham prophesied of the crucifixion. And it is my favorite Old Testament picture of what we're studying as we make our way through Matthew. So let's go to Genesis chapter 22. And I'm gonna let the scriptures speak for themselves as we read the first 13 verses. The setting is Abraham offering up Isaac. Verse one, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. I want you to notice No hesitation on Abraham's part. No saying, no arguing. Notice the word and. He does things one right after another, at least six or seven times and in the next two verses. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took out two young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for a burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. It was get up and go. No debate, no argument. Notice that there's two men. This is gonna play into the story because we're gonna have a picture here of Calvary. And we have two men going along. That's the first one. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off, which would have been Moriah. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. I believe he meant what he said, even though at the same time, he's determined to follow through with what God had told him. God made him a promise. He said, Abraham, I promise. It's gonna be through your son Isaac that your descendants are gonna be as the stars in heaven. Ball's in God's court. If you promise and God cannot lie, and you're telling me to kill my son, well then we got a couple options here. Either you're gonna stop it before it happens, or I kill him and you bring him back to life because you told me that my descendants are gonna come through this child right here. So when he said, I'm going to return, I I believe he meant that. Verse six, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. Now we got Isaac carrying wood. What did we have Jesus taking to Calvary? His own cross, carrying the wood. And, um, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. In other words, they're in agreement. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, look, we have the fire or the wood But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac doesn't know yet. He will shortly. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide. Now I have to stop here. I have the new King James. And I have uh, um, the word for put in here and himself. If you have a King James Bible, you have a better translation. In this particular case, because you do not have the prefix for there. It's eliminated. But it changes everything. My son, God will provide himself, literally, not for himself. That word should not be there. So the better translation here would be in the King James. God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And the two of them went in agreement Then they came to the place of which God had told him and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. Notice Isaac does not put up any resistance. He doesn't look at his dad and says, Dad, you're getting old and you're getting senile. What in the world do you think you're doing? And there's no resistance there Jesus went to the cross, and when Peter tried to rescue him, he said, Peter, come on, I could call for 12 legions of angels, and we could stop this all here right now. Jesus went to the cross with the full knowledge of knowing what was going to happen. And the victory was really in Gethsemane as much as it was on Calvary, another a good place for an amen. Just as much at, at Calvary, where he said, not my will, but thy will be done. It was over, just as it was over in Abraham's mind that he was going to go through with this. So Abraham, he laid him on an altar of wood. Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the lad, or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. End of story. Now comes the prophecy. Abraham prophesies at this point, and the prophecy is in verse 14. Abraham called the name of this place the Lord will provide as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. He's prophesying about another father who's going to offer up his son only this time the father is going to go through with it. He'll have to turn away for a moment and he'll be forsaken but it'll only be For a moment. Let me tell you a little bit about Mount Moriah. Uh, There's seven mountains around Jerusalem, Mount Scopus, Mount Zion, Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, when you go to the Temple Mount, it's um, where the Dome of the Rock is. It's the, the center part of Jerusalem. When you go to that area, you see this big golden dome. I've only been inside once, even though I've been to Israel many, many, many times. Once was enough for me. What they have in here is a foundation stone that sticks out. Now, if you ask any rabbi, they will tell you that this is where Abraham offered Isaac. So we, the Dome of the Rock's gotta go as far as they're concerned if they're gonna have their temple back. And, um, but I don't believe that's the case at all the temple mount lies at 742 meters above sea level and if i'm abraham and i'm told to go to a place that the lord is going to show me a very specific spot and we have abraham on mount moriah saying someday you're going to see this followed through with and he's talking about calvary What you're looking at right here is the highest point on Mount Moriah. Well, actually the highest point is there's a graveyard above it. Above the skull uh, would have been the very top of Mount Moriah. But if you go down to street level, which is where I believe Jesus was crucified, and if you're going to make an offering to the Lord, I believe that he would have went all the way to the top. What are you saying, Dwight? I believe that Golgotha is where Abraham offered Isaac, in the very same place, in the very same spot. And if you don't agree with me, that's perfectly fine. You're wrong, but it's perfectly fine. It just makes sense to me. Why go halfway up the mountain? And then to have this event, we know that it was on Mount Moriah, but we don't know where. We do know where Jesus was crucified. Clearly says Golgotha, the place of the skull, where we get the name Calvary Chapel from. Um, Rabbis will tell you that, um, that it took place at a Temple Mount, but I don't hold to that. All right, some closing thoughts. Let's go to Matthew 27, verse 51, as we tie this together this morning. When Jesus died, something happened in the temple. Verse 51. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. That's important. The earthquake and the rocks were split. I would get a little nervous at this time if I'm the Roman soldiers. There's an earthquake. The rocks are splitting open. But the veil in the temple, the temple was divided into two rooms. The Holy of Holies. There would have been priests in there on a regular basis. Either Um, putting incense on the um, table of incense, maybe taking care of the light of the candles, maybe taking care of the bread. Uh, They were allowed in there. But only the high priest, and only once a year on Yom Kippur, could go behind this veil and make intercession for the sins of the people of Israel. Imagine for a moment After Jesus died, the first thing it tells us is that this veil, which was very thick and very tall, was rent right down the middle from the top to the bottom, which means the Lord did it. Now, a men's prayer, we just got done in Exodus, and the Lord says, now, when I call you and Aaron up to the mountain, make sure the people don't come near the mountain, because if they even touch the mountain, they're dead men. Why? Because God is holy. And... For a man to be in the presence of God, um, he had to have a a ritual that the high priest would go through in order for him to actually go behind this veil. And now, can you imagine being a priest in the holy place and all of a sudden it's wide open and you look at yourself, I'm not dead. (laughs) And... This tells me that for the first time, Hebrews 4, we are to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of help and need. When we visit the Temple Mount, and we've, we've been led up there by Rabbi Richmond, and he'll go certain places with us, but the place that I want to go, he won't go near at all, because they did some excavating And um, I'm pretty sure um, and so is uh, other people in Jerusalem like Rabbi Getz actually believe they know where the Holy of Holies is. When you're traveling through the rabbinical tunnel, they stop at a certain place and they pray in that direction because that's where they believe the Holy of Holies would have been. But if you're a Jew on the top, you walk all the way around this for fear that you would ever step on the Holy of Holies or go near where the Ark of the Covenant was. I like to have a Bible study there. Now I was telling a story during the first service and my wife takes out her phone and what I'm about to show you, we didn't have the first service, there's a cupola; It's called the Dome of the Spirits. It's north of the Dome of the Rock. And um, I'm going to show it to you right now. This is Judy and I. Um... I give a Bible study at this very spot every time we go up on the Temple Mount. Why do I do it here? Because I believe that's where the Holy of Holies is. And the Bible study that I usually give is to come boldly before the Lord. And I talk about this veil being rent. At one time unthinkable that any human being would ever think about going behind that veil because you'd be killed immediately. Now we're to come boldly. So if I have a big smile on my face, there's a reason why. I know that I can come boldly before God and that he not only allows me to, but he commands me to in Hebrews. He tells me, come boldly to the throne of grace that you might obtain mercy and grace in time of need and help. And and again, up till this time, only the high priest. Job's dilemma in his heartache, what he cried out for, oh, I wish there was a mediator. I wish there was somebody that could lay their hand on God and lay their hand on me so that we could be joined together. That's what happened when the veil was ripped. God made the separation so that we could actually come boldly into his presence. But more importantly, on Pentecost, not only enter in, but actually it says, don't you realize that you're the temple of God and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Timothy 2, five. there's one God, one meter between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. If you're not saved this morning, never given your life to Jesus, um, and you're thinking, Dwight, if you knew my life, if you knew who I was, what I'd done, there's just, there's just no way that it's gonna, it's not, it's not in the cards for me. I've just done too much, And it just can't happen. My thought here, if you're thinking like that, is I want you to remember the thief on the cross. What good work did he have? None. He was a thief. Um, Was he ever baptized? Nope. Did he ever go to the synagogue? Nope. He had nothing going for him except looking at Jesus and said, would you just remember me, Lord? And the Lord saw that guy's heart, and he saved him. If he can save that man, he can save you, he can save me. And um, there's, I did this at first service, and I shouldn't have because I tried to remember an old song and the lyrics. And I got the guy's last name out, it was Francisco. And I couldn't remember his first name. So I had to pick on Paul Cameron. I said, Paul, you're a radio guy. What's the guy's first name? It's Don Francisco. And so you'd have to be into Jesus music for a long time to remember this guy. But one of his lyrics is, I don't care where you've been sleeping. I don't care what you've done. And it, the point that he's making is, there's nothing you've ever done that Jesus Christ isn't bigger. And there's nothing that you've ever done that His His sin, what he did on Calvary can make you clean. Ask the thief on the cross. This is a deathbed conversion. I've talked to people on their deathbed and they said, You think I'm going to change now? I've been this way my whole life. You think that God would take me now after denying him my whole life? I go to the story of the thief on the cross and I say, Absolutely yes. This guy had hours to live. And Jesus says, Today you're going to be with me in paradise. Don't think you've ever gone too far. Don't think that you can't, whatever you've done, can't be forgiven. It can be and will be. First John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you for some of your unrighteousness. Right? No, all. All of your unrighteousness. The mercies of the Lord are new every single morning. Do you know that you can wake up every morning with a clean slate every single day Yes, you're going to blow it, and yes, you're going to sin. But as long as you're walking in repentance says, Lord, that was stupid what I just did. Will you forgive me? That evil thought comes in your head and you go, where in the world did that come from? Lord, forgive me of that thought. And he will. He's faithful and just, uh, and we're not. The last thing is, the title this morning was Picking Up Our Own Cross. As he did, Jesus said, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Then Jesus said to his disciple, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Last verse is in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. What does it mean to pick up your cross and follow the Lord? Basically dying daily. Romans 12, Paul's begging them. He says, I... Old old English, beseech! I beg you. I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. After everything we read about the suffering of what Jesus went through this morning, is it not a reasonable thing to give your life to him as a living sacrifice? You know the problem with a living sacrifice? Living sacrifices can get off the altar whenever they want to. That's why Paul said, I have to die daily. You have to consciously say, Lord, here's my life today. I'm willing to die today, and I want you to influence me. Now verse two, and don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'll close with quoting McGee this morning. We today do not like to face the horror of the cross. We have embellished the cross. We have almost beautified it. We have made the cross into a piece of jewelry. But you must remember the crucifixion meant shame, torture, and a slow and agonizing death. Philippians 2.8 says, Our Lord Jesus was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We're all going to die. You know, the Bible says it's pointed unto man once to die. I am personally really hoping for the rapture because I don't like what I see about getting old. And I'd rather go out with a rapture than a body that wears out. How about an amen there? Well, if that doesn't happen... You are going to die. Um, but you can die confidently with assurance that you're going to your father's house. You can die with the promise of God's word to give you grace and strength and comfort. You can die in the safest place of, in all the universe in the hand of God. Jesus said, my sheep, hear my voice, and I know them, they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. They will never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. What a wonderful thing it is to die with confidence and assurance and to say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, as we consider the crucifixion and all that you've done for us, truly, it is a very reasonable thing on our part to present ourselves to you Lord, I pray for any who've never accepted you personally, and I pray that they would have a, a deeper understanding of what you went through for them and simply accept that free gift that you offer. Lord, we're just grateful beyond words, um, and we thank you for all that you've done. We pray for your return, Lord. We pray it comes come soon. But until then, we ask, Lord, for endurance and perseverance and discernment and the willingness to die daily to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.